For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. When he's ready, Tygen will introduce today's speaker. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. So uh, for those of you who are new uh, to Ancient Dragons and Gate, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding drama teacher here. Uh, and I'm really happy to have speaking to us this morning, Stephen Hine. Um, and he's... Uh, spoken to Ancient Dragon many times in the past, but for those of you who don't know him, um, Stephen, uh, well, he's a professor at Florida International University, and he is the foremost Western uh, expert scholar on Eihei Dogen, the 13th century Japanese monk who founded what we now call Soto Zen. Uh, If I were to try and read all of the titles of all of Stephen Hines' books, it would take me 30 or 40 minutes. I'll just mention a few. Uh, a couple of his early books, which I think are important. Uh, one is Dogen and the Koan Tradition, in which uh, Stephen uh, uh, exp- expresses how Dogen used koans, very different from what most people in the West think of as koan practice and related to what we do here. Also, um, Did Dogen Go to China is a really wonderful uh, book by Stephen about uh, Dogen's career, his teaching, uh, and his writing, very, very helpful. Uh, amongst his many, I, he writes books faster than I can read them, but amongst the many uh, of his many recent books, I'll just mention Flowers Blooming on a Withered Tree, Gion's first comments on Dogen Shobogenzo, which is a really helpful book on early uh, Soto Zen, Japanese Soto Zen, and the early interpretations of Dogen. Gian was the fifth abbot of Eiheiji that Dogen founded. And uh, for those of you who might be interested, I'll also mention Stephen's very interesting book on Bob Dylan called Bargaining for Salvation. So uh, thank you for coming again to Ancient Dragons Zen Gate, Stephen, and uh, welcome. Stephen, I believe you're still muted. Yeah, I, the cardinal sin of un, not unmuting myself. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. So thank you, Ty, again for the introduction. And um, of course, thank you also for all your wonderful uh, publications and um, other activities and lectures and uh, everything that you do to help promote um, um, 
the teachings of Dogen and Soto Zen um, and, and built such a fine community, which I've always enjoyed uh, speaking to. And, um, you know, in these last year and a half or so uh, by Zoom. Um, and um, today I'm going to um, talk uh, primarily about some uh, issues in Do Dogen's biography and, you know, his life and times and how we understand uh, the reality from the legends or the fact from the fiction or, um, what, you know, what it takes to come to terms with um, an historical figure like Dogen, who's been the subject, like many Buddhist teachers and many teachers of other traditions as well, going back to that era of the 13th century. And also, uh, even more recently, um, these figures get celebrated and therefore somewhat uh, romanticized and, and um uh, stories enter into the uh, uh, biographies uh, that um, that you know we sometimes want to kind of pull out what what seems to be the reality versus what seems to be something that was uh, either exaggerated or even manufactured over the years. And there's still many debates about that. And and partly it's because I think that um, the uh, career of Dogen as it unfolded is very interesting. Uh, and rather complex, and our understanding of his uh, written work, his writings, uh, his main books, Treasury of the True Dharma or Shobogenzo, uh, his extensive record, or Ehei Koloku, is somewhat dependent on understanding uh, when they were written during his life and career, uh, what he was trying to express. We know that Dogen sometimes is uh, intricate and also apparently contradictory, or seemingly so, maybe deliberately so, maybe it's because he um, was trying to um, come to terms with different uh, audience sectors that he was targeting in his uh, lectures and sermons, or because he was wrestling with how to articulate complicated ideas and uh, from uh, multiple perspectives and uh, multi-perspectivism, multi I, I think is uh, one of the main keys to understanding it, but very much related to um, his life and times. And um, Carl Bielefeld, who I'm sure uh, many of you know, is is still working on what's what's going to become the definitive translation of Shobogenzo when it's done. Um, and he once said uh, many years ago that uh, we, we can start off uh, thinking about somebody uh, like Dogen in terms of their philosophical ideas, their teachings, their dharma. Um, but uh, we also have to wrestle with uh, the uh, a question of their actual situation as best we know it. And what, uh, you know, we kind of get down in the weeds to use a, a metaphor that is often applied in, in Zen writings to, um, to the teachings of some of the uh, ancestors. We have to get down in the weeds uh, with uh, some of these details, I think. Um, so let me start out to kind of entice you a little bit more with this topic uh, let me start out and let me ask uh, Tygen or Doug or, or anybody else who's here, if you would like to point out one or two um, topics, events, occurrences in Dogen's life, any time in his whole lifetime from 1200 to 1253, his childhood, his um, uh, early years in Zen, his temples in Kyoto and in the in the remote mountains at Heiji, um, any any um, 
event that you can think of off the top of your head that you'd like to um, point out? So uh, may I ask for a suggestion or two from? Douglas, you want to start? Well, I'm interested in the Dogen's meeting with Rujing where he visited and announced that mind and body had been dropped off. Okay. So the the seminal event, maybe the could be the single most important event of the dropping off body mind and his encounter with Rujing. Is that that's what you're saying? Yes. Okay, good. Let me let me ask for one more suggestion. I will add. Yeah. Uh, Dogen's uprooting his whole community in 1243 and moving from uh, the capital of Kyoto way up into the mountains to and eventually founding Eiheiji. Right. Okay. So those events are about um, uh, 20, uh, about, um, no, I'm sorry, about 18 years apart, I guess, the, the dropping off body mind. I, I tend to use the term casting off body mind, but the dropping off is, of course, an um, excellent way to put it. Um, that is uh, supposed to have taken place in the summer training period of uh, 1225, and he would have met Rujing, um a couple months before. He would have met him in the fifth month, so let's just say May, but that was according to the um, you know traditional Chinese lunar calendar, so... Um, that dating is a little bit off, but let's say he met him in May. Um, Dogen had been traveling to various um, Zen temples in China and then returned in in that month because his companion, uh, Myo Zen, had, he had learned that his companion had, had died at a relatively young age. He was in his early 40s, and they had come to China together. Um, we don't know the circumstances. Um, exactly for uh, Miozen's death. Uh, eventually, Dogen, when he returned to Japan, brought Miozen's um, uh, cremation remains, which he, which he said included several hundred um, uh, relics, um, uh, back to uh, Japan. And uh, that, that's a notable episode uh, there. But anyway, uh, when he had returned to the temple that he had started with, but kind of rejected in um, in 1223, when he first arrived uh, in China, and Yozen had stayed there for those couple of years. Um, they came in, in April of 1223. Um, uh, but when he returned to, to recover um, Yozen, Yozen's uh, body and remains, the, um, he met Ruzhing, who had just been installed. And it turned out it was just the last outpost for, um, for Ruzhing's career, where he had been this was the fifth and final temple that he was the uh, leader of. And just in time, uh, he was installed and Dogen and uh, Ruzhing um, met each other. And then, um, so that's the, that's um, uh, Doug's suggestion. And then uh, Taigen's suggestion is, uh, occurs in 1243 when uh, Dogen seems in full swing in the capital city of Kyoto with Koshoji temple. And things seem to be going, uh, fairly smoothly or very, I mean, very smoothly in terms of the growth of the temple and, and his teachings. And he was writing so much of Shobogenzo and giving lectures from a record at that time. But suddenly, without any explanation, and there's no um, explanation in Dogen's own writings or in, um, in any of the traditional writings, really, and uh, like some 
reason given. So there's ideas that people suggest and scholars try to look at, but uh, he, he, he leaves and he uproots his community. Uh, maybe a couple monks um, stayed behind in Kyoto. It's not clear. Uh, the temple, the Kyoto temple did survive and eventually was moved uh, to a, a small town south, uh, east of um, Kyoto. But he starts a new temple up in the mountains that, that became Eheji. So these are two very, very important events. And I try to describe in a little bit of detail to show, like, there's a lot of complexity when you look at it and a lot that we don't know for sure. Uh, do we need to know everything for sure? Maybe, maybe not. So to, but I said about the enticing part. So <laughs> let me, let me turn to some illustrations here. And um, so I'm going to share screen. Can everybody see this? Yes. Okay. So this is a little bit different scene. I'll get to the two that, um, that have been suggested. Um, the, the one on the left-hand side, and there's a little inscription in the Japanese there, but just looking at the image, um, can anybody guess uh, what's happening in that scene? Uh, the reason I turn to it first is because I'm very fascinated by Dogen's writing, what he, you know, the text that we read, but actually how did he go about the writing in that, in that time period where literature of all kinds, philosophical, religious, uh, po- poetry was uh, so highly valued in both uh, China, um, Chinese society at the time and, of course, in Japan at that time. And uh, the calligraphy itself was, of course, very highly valued. And we do have some examples of uh, Dogen's own calligraphy, especially um, the uh, Fukan Zazengi is the main example, which is a national treasure in Japan. Anybody guess what what time period this is or what he's doing there? Okay, there's a there's a um, a very short uh, kind of poetic essay um, for spring, for a new spring. I think the year was 1247. It appears in the Enlightenment Unfolds um, translation that um, that Akash uh, uh, um, Tanahashi has. Um, edited and, and translated with others, um, including Taigan, uh, some passages. And so um, this was um, a moment of his um, writing out this essay. And, you know, it's interesting to me to see the way the, you know, some of the monks are gathered around him and waiting to uh, hear his words of inspiration. Probably uh, uh, somebody else is, uh, you know, we, we would assume somebody else is making a record of it. Just to have um, just to have that um, on file, and um, uh, so so that you know that, that's not a major event compared to the ones we were, were talking about, but another interesting event. And wh- where does this illustration come from? Well, in the um, you know Dogen's biography is sketchy. If you look at the traditional sources, the single uh, main source is the uh, book known as the Denko Loko, which was a, a collection of sermons by Kazan uh, in the Soto uh, tradition around the year 1300. So about half a century since Dogen had died. And uh, Kazan kind of has, has, you know, 50 some chapters on on all the uh, going back to uh, the earliest days on all the ancestors of uh, Soto, Soto Zen. And uh, I guess Ejo is the uh, final chapter and, and Dogen is the penultimate chapter. And he, he pulls together 
as many um, remembrances as possible with his own interpretation in some cases. And he does highlight the Rujing uh, Dogen interaction about uh, dropping off body mind as, as a key to it. And that's been translated several times. I know uh, Francis Cook has a translation and, um, and of course, Thomas Cleary. And there's um, a couple of other translations just of the Dogen chapter that are available. Um, and then in, um, in the 1700s, that uh, book known as K, uh, oh, excuse me. And then in the 1400s, uh, the head of um, Heiji at the time, a monk named Kenzei, so this is called Kenzei Ki, the record of Kenzei, uh, did a very comprehensive biography of Dogen. And this was um, uh, supposed to have been written in 1452. Uh, they, at that time, they started to celebrate 50-year anniversaries of Dogen's death, which was a common practice in, in the Buddhist schools in Japan. And so this would have been the 200th anniversary of his death. And then um, apparently it was kind of kept, kept confidential or, or not circulated, and then it was published in 1472. All of the manuscripts we have are at least from mid-1500s and 1600s. In 1752, for the 500th death anniversary, a very famous monk from that period, Menzan, um, expanded greatly. Menzan was known as a real kind of down-to-earth textual studies guy. He was a maestro of Shobogenzo and many other Dogen works. But in his version, in his what he called the annotated version of the Kenzeki, he really uh, put in a lot of the myths and legends that are are fun, but, you know, maybe some people might consider a distraction from if you're really trying to understand, you know, Dogen as uh, Dogen's actuality. Um, and then in the 1802-1803 period, which was the um, 550th death anniversary, they created these floating world print type of uh, illustrations that um, for the most recent anniversary which were black and white. And for the most recent anniversary in 2002, um, 2003, uh, were colorized and, and various versions. There are other versions traditionally of, of illustrations of episodes in Dogen's life. So let me go to the two that were, that were mentioned. Um, okay. So let's, let's, um, let's start with this one. Um, any thoughts on what's going on here on the left side? Traveling to Aheji. What what's that? Aheji. Traveling to what became Aheji. Traveling to Aheji. So there was a famous, uh, you know, it was difficult to travel in the mountains um, in that, in that time period. Um, and, um, there was a famous pass called Kinobe pass, which, which kind of, uh, cut through some of the high mountains. And, um, here he is with his band of followers. Uh, we don't know exactly how many people went with him. We don't know exactly how long it took, but guesstimates are, uh, it took a week and maybe there were, uh, 25, 30, uh, um, monks in his entourage going with him. The one on the, um, you can see the one on the right side, that's the construction of a Heiji. Uh, uh, once, they got, once they got to the mountains, um, 
it was still late summer, and then it took about nine months for a Heiji to be built. It was originally called Daibutsuji when they opened it up. So um, those are interesting illustrations, I think. And then let's go to um, – okay. Um, here he um, – okay. Can you see the one on the right side? Uh, anybody uh, know what this one is? Which which person is Dogen? Dogen's in the center here, and he's looking over at the monk, um, snoozing during zazen, during a sashin, in the summer. And here's Rujing about to reprimand this person and says, you know, you must practice single-minded sitting, not single-minded sleeping uh, and cast off or drop off body-mind. Um, later that night, uh, let's see, later that night, Dogen um, goes to Wuxing's um, private quarters. There's another monk attending and observing um, and commenting a little bit on, on Rujing's view that Dogen is an extraordinary figure as a foreign monk who'd only been practicing a couple of years in China and really just a couple months with Rujing to have um, attained dropping off body mind so quickly. Now, um, what, um, what, um, is not discussed in this kind of uh, uh, material, either in the Kenzeki as a written work, which has not been translated, but there are passages you can find here and there in, you know, in, in English uh, books about Dogen, uh, or in the uh, illustrations, which also haven't been widely disseminated in the West, but uh, there are several versions published in, in Japanese sources. But what, what's not there is the controversy about dropping off body mind because uh you know Rujing and other Chinese teachers of the time period were not known to have expressed the phrase that way. And Rujing was known a little bit to or at least there's one time in the record that we have of his right now that says cast off the dust from the mind. Of course, the word dust is complicated because it doesn't necessarily mean defilement. Like Huynang's mirror, dust can mean a sensation which could be pure. That just the character for dust, you know, could be translated actually as sensation. And the sensation itself is a neutral term that could be, could be contaminated or could be purified. But it's a different term than Dogen. And Dogen either misheard uh, Rujing, misunderstood the Chinese a little bit. Um, you know, or decided to change it because the dust sounded dualistic. You know, we don't get that discussion in these kinds of, uh, in, in this kind of material. But I think we do get an important background that kind of helps us, brings to life and helps us visualize uh, what, you know, what was actually taking place. Of course, you know, obviously there's uh, romanticized features here. And let me just show a couple of other examples all right, what's going on here? Well, they say that when Dogen, that after um, Rujing um, 
uh, 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 got sick two years later in the summer of 1227 and was about to die. And there's a debate whether he died in that year or the following year. So whether Dogen left China because Ruzhing was was dying or whether Ruzhing actually lived in a whole other year after Dogen left. But anyway, in Dogen's return, he's attacked by a tiger. He does meditation in the branches of a tree. The tiger is scared away. Number one. Number two. On the uh, right-hand side, Dogen gets very ill traveling in China, and uh, a deity magically appears from Japan and provides Dogen's um, companion with some medicine that he hands to him, and then Dogen uh, takes that medicine and is is cured. And yeah, you know, this became a very important item in the in the history of, of many Soto Zen temples that um where where they said they had the formula for that medicine and that was distributed or it was sold um at at soto temples for several centuries um recalling uh this uh this legend and to, just to show an example of how you know what what's what we now call hagiography rather than biography or romanticized biography can set in and um uh, over on the right side here, number three, Dogen is copying the uh, Blue Cliff Record, the uh, famous koan collection, um, and uh, which has 100 cases. He got very exhausted around case 80. And then uh, a deity appears and finishes the uh, writing of the final 20 cases in the night before Dogen's about to leave. This is, there's many complicated aspects and fascinating aspects uh, about about this whole story. But one interesting detail is that when the story was originally recorded, there was a local Chinese uh, dragon type deity who um, was known to protect port cities. And for Buddhist purposes, port cities were where there was a lot of travel of monks who took sutras around the country and uh, were translating sutras. And so that deity also came to uh, the uh, help of Dogen because um, the Blue Cliff Record was a kind of Zen version of a sutra, we could say. Um, And then um, number four, and when I say number four, I mean four very interesting kind of supernatural legends about Dogen's um, final days in China before he returns. There's a, a big typhoon. Um, you know, that's not so surprising because the, the, those waterways were filled with storms and still are. And, but in those days, the, the ships weren't, um, that advanced and the, and the travel was, was very, um, uh, hazardous. And, and, you know, it seems uh, it's been reported that, you know, a high percentage of monks or other travelers, whether diplomats or merchants or, 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 uh, translators, unfortunately died along the way. And Dogen has a vision of what's called the one leaf canon. And she comes to his assistance and, um, and he does make, um, make the trip back to uh, Japan uh, successfully. Um, So the, um, I'm going to remove that uh, image and let me just show the cover of the uh, book that's going to be published by Shambhala, December 21. 2020 and uh, later this year. And um, this, uh, this book uh, is called the uh, Dogen Japan's original Zen thinker. 
And uh, the book is in a series, a fairly new series um, for Shambhala of uh, Buddhist masters, past and present. And most of them have been Indo-Tibetan traditions. Um, there's another book in the series coming out on Xuanzang that might be out a little bit earlier than mine. Um, and the, the, these two will be the first on the, uh, East Asia. And for this series, what they asked for was um, an overview of a kind of critical overview of Dogen's uh, life um, that would be kind of informative, but yet, you know, kind of come to terms with the significance of a lot of the symbolism and also um, an emphasis on Dogen's uh, works. And, and they encouraged um, a translation of some representative works. When it came to the point of the works, uh, I said, well, look, um, you know, so much of Dogen has been translated now. Some, in some cases, multiple times. Shobogenzo, many versions, um, extensive record. Well, still one main version, but it's a monumental achievement from Taigen and Shohaku Okamura. So there's no need to translate, you know, try to duplicate those translations. Ehi Shingo, also Taigen and Shohaku, and, you know, some other passages from there have been translated. Dogen's Waka, I, I translated uh, some years ago, and, and there's others available. And so um, uh, Shobogenzo Zui Monkey, the 300 Koan cases. All of those are available, and there's anthologies. If you're interested in a kind of digest approach to Dogen's works, uh, there's several good, very good digests available, including several published by Shambhala. So there was no point in trying to duplicate that. So what I said I could do, or I tried to do, was to um, analyze the history of Dogen's works. And, you know, I divided it into two categories. One is what I call the individual writings that represent a particular time period, like Shobogenzo Zui Monkey, or sometimes called Record of Things Heard, um, which was um, which was a collection of his sermons uh, from 1236 to 1238, and supposed to have been published in 1238, and that Ejo recorded that. Sometimes Ejo was listed as the author, but they are all the sayings from Dogen. But um, uh, I, I put that, and there's a dozen others, um, and 300 Koan case collection that uh, Kaz Tanahashi and, and um, Daido Lori did some commentary on a few years ago. And um, and so kind of analyze the chronology. When did they get written? You know, where was, what was Dogen doing at the time? What else was he writing? And then the second category is his major collections that span uh, different time periods and basically span the um, the Kyoto or Koshoji Temple and mountains or he Heiji Temple time periods. And, I, you know, the, and how to understand the relation between those. One of my um, longstanding interests is what is the connection between the style of sermons Dogen gave in Chobo Genzo and the style of sermons Dogen gave in, um, in Extensive Record. And Taigen's um, introduction to Extensive Record, you know, de deals with that. And, and, you know, it's and I've also uh, published some stuff on that, but it's I think it's a you know ongoing uh, fascinating uh, issue because a lot of the topics and themes and particular items are very similar in the in the two. And he might have given a, 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 a written a, a fascicle for Shobogenzo, and then you know same month or um, just before or after 
you know, given lectures that appear in the uh, extensive record dealing with some of the same topics. So what is the connection uh, between those? Um, now let's, um, but, but uh, the, the main thing I'm discussing today is, um, is the life and times. So um, let me look at the first line here, actual, constructed, imagined, remembered, and reconstructed. So I happen to be reading a book um, the other day on uh, a biography of the famous Chinese poet from the Tang Dynasty, Li Bai, who was not a Buddhist, but wrote some kind of Buddhist-oriented or Buddhist-influenced uh, poetry and was a, just a fascinating cultural uh, figure that um, who, who's, who's kind of um, irreverent and, um, and roguish kind of lifestyle in some ways anticipated um, or influenced the, uh, the growth of uh, Zen. And the, this was a, by a modern uh, Chinese author. Um, and he, he said, well, when you look at somebody like Li Bai, there's the actual Li Bai or Dogen, the constructed Dogen and the imagined Dogen. Um, and I, you know, I think it's clear what these, uh, what these terms uh, represent. Um, constructed, well, we have to look at Dogen himself kind of constructed his own story, I think, is an important part of it. Um, you know, uh, the, it's been said of, uh, of musicians uh, when they produce their own record, sometimes they're their own best producer or they or they you know, get rid of their agent and they and they plan their own um, uh, musical tour that sometimes they represent themselves the best way. I think the best storyteller about Dogen is Dogen. Now, I don't mean he's inventing things, but he's he's giving us a narrative it very clearly, but it's not a single easy to siphon narrative because it's spread over a few different um, uh, sources. And, you know, there's a lot left out. Like he doesn't say um, much about the Shinjin uh, Datsuraka where they're dropping off a bottom line. He doesn't address that too much himself directly. He uses the term, he refers to it, but he doesn't say exactly what happened, although there are a couple of references to it. Um, Excuse me, Stephen, you still have the, on the screen share, the pictures of Dogen's life. I don't know if you want to take that. Oh, okay. something okay. else. All right. All right. Thank you for putting that. Yeah, I'm still. Okay. So let me do the screen share for what I, what I've been talking about. Thanks for mentioning to me that to me. Okay. So this is the cover of the book. And these are some of the themes that I've been referring to actual constructed imagine now imagined is what happens when you bring into it the tiger that gets scared away the cannon appearing in the water the deities that come from japan to help dogen out in hard times you know that's where it gets uh imagined but i think in in dogen's case and and this is also true for people like nichiren and honan and other leaders founders of the buddhist sects from the same period as dogen in the 13th century um there's the remembered life of Dogen because of these 50-year memorials and, and other memorials that occur in between. But let's take just briefly the 50-year memorials of Dogen. You know, the Soto sect has always used those as an opportunity for fundraising to rebuild the temple buildings, for um, um, kind of doing new, new editions of Dogen's collected works, for doing new editions of Dogen's uh, bi biography, for kind of figuring out who needs in society now to be addressed. Is it the monks that need more encouragement um, and or lay persons? Is it, um, you know, in, in the 12, in the 1950s at that anniversary, that 700th anniversary, they put a lot of emphasis on, on female 
um, mostly lay practitioners, but they were trying to engage uh, female practitioners a lot more. And then the reconstructed category refers to, um, you know, modern, uh, what we could call historiographical techniques, where you're trying to see through uh, the mythology to find um, the fact from fiction and um, and trying to, um, you know, understand the, you know, realistic circumstances as best we can. And and that's led to uh, many uh, debates. Um, so, you know, one big issue is like, why did Dogen climb those mountains with his disciples in the midstream of his career and never turn back? He does return to Kyoto very briefly at the end of his life for medical care before he dies in, in Kyoto. And then his body is taken back to um, Heiji, where it's still commemorated uh, today. Like, why, you know, why is that? He doesn't say it. Uh, these early records refer to it, but because obviously it was a change in, of setting and scenery, but they don't say, oh, he did it because of this and that. So people reconstruct it. And, you know, one one thing that comes up is that there are very few records outside of uh, the uh, Soto sect that were that concerned with Dogen's life. So you don't get, you know, non-religious records or secular you know, records or records in the civil society you know, talking about these things, but there are a couple of references to it. And, the, you know, one reference has been that, well, Dogen's enemies in Kyoto burned down his temple because they were jealous of his success and therefore he had to flee. And, you know, it turns out, and, and that's, so, you know, you know, that, that kind of got accepted as a fact for, for, for many, many years. And, when modern historians wanted to take a closer look, you know, they had to start with that because that was always out there. Then, you know, some modern historians had said, hey, the work that that was supposed to be based on, you know, doesn't exist or either doesn't exist or, you know, over the years it it, it dropped that off or, it, you know, excluded that passage about Dogen. So that, you know, that's not reliable. Other people, later people were saying, oh, such and such said, but what was that such and such? It, you know, it, it, it didn't really say that that way. And so, you know, we don't know, um, you know, uh, what's happening uh, with that whole idea that he his, his temple was torched and he, he had to flee. Um, and then, you know, I've tried to consider and others based on, you know, some Japanese scholars. Well, you know, what what if he would, did it by choice? He, what if he wasn't running away from Kyoto? What if he chose to kind of pioneer this new territory? But. Then you have to look at, well, what was happening in that in the territory that he ended up in? Uh, you know, why did he choose that? Why did he go there? Well, one basic theory is that his um, samurai patron, Hatano, had some land up there and um, and made that available to Dogen. But Hatano had land in a lot of areas. He, you know, he, he was from a very powerful samurai f- family that had become empowered in that in that era of the 1200s. Um, when the um, uh, um, imperial power was now in the hands of the uh, shogun and the samurai. So, um, you know, and if you look at like, well, you know, where did he end up and why did he end up there and what else was going on in religious circles? uh, There's some very interesting things that, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's to a large extent speculation. He, he went to uh, a famous mountain, Mount Hakusan, which literally means white mountain because it's a snow covered peak that was kind of at that time period was much more 
famous and popular than Mount Fuji because Fuji was to the, uh, uh, you know, Tokyo hadn't been, um, wasn't built until 1600. So Fuji in the Tokyo area was not nearly as well known as this Hakusan. And there were Tendai temples there. There was some early, um, an early school of Zen that had a temple in that air in that vicinity. And maybe he chose that because of affinities, associations, linkages that he thought would be beneficial in that area. Okay, so moving along, let me let me say, and uh, <laughs> um, I I always try to, and I have different versions of this over the years, and you know other people have done it as well, but I like to divide you know, Dogen's life into certain periods. And, um, you know, he lived 50, like 53 years or so. And so five periods of about 10 years is good. I, 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 um, I was working with the model of uh, four periods of about a dozen years each. The first period is, is his birth and, um, and how he decided to become a monk to begin with. And um, already experienced what's known as the Great Doubt. So that's 1200 to 1213. And then the next um, series is uh, when he uh, decides to leave the Tendai sect because of his Great Doubt and um, uh, start to practice Zen for the first time and um, train in um, in Zazen. I mean, I I think it it would not be fair to use the word Shikantaza to that stage because Supposedly, Dogen was the one initiating Shikantaza, um, but um, he um, he trains, uh, you know, for for quite a while, all, you know, almost a decade before he goes to China. It varies whether it's six years, eight years, nine years, but he's training for quite a while. We don't know very much about that time period. Goes to China and has dropping off body mind, and then um, the third period is he returns. And eventually has, becomes very prominent in Kyoto. And the fourth period is after he climbs the mountains. And I'm calling these stages uh, formative, transformative in the sense that that's when he gained enlightenment, reformative in the sense that that's when he's starting his own uh, movement in, in Buddhism, let's call it a sect. And then performative is that now he's kind of the master of ceremonies at Aheji. And all, you know, his, his rituals and discipline and, and meditation and uh, teachings are kind of all, you know, functioning um, uh, smoothly. Um, uh, but, you know, it doesn't mean without some issues or concerns or problems for the historians uh, sitting in. I'm going to go uh, into a little more detail on a couple of examples of that. And I have this uh, map. I realized it's kind of hard to look at on the screen. You have to kind of see it close up. But basically that the uh, formative period is the early years in Kyoto when he um, studies at Mount Hiei, that's the Tendai sect. He visits Onjoji Temple, which is another Tendai sect. Once he has the great doubt, he tries another branch of, um, of Tendai because he didn't know where else to turn. And then he say, say, well, guess what? Asai had started Kenenji Temple, which was a mixed temple. It still, it still used Tendai, but it did put an emphasis on, on Zazen. And so he goes there. And then um, eventually um, um, uh, ends up in China for the second period. 
and travels around a number of temples there, and quite a few historical questions come up there, um, comes back to Kyoto for the third period and sets up shop at um, Koshoji Temple, and then and then makes the move to a, a Heiji, but um, apparently left for about six months to visit Kamakura, which was the temporary capital of the new shogun, who was very interested in Buddhism, um, and um, invited Dogen to start a temple, which eventually became Kenshoji Temple. Dogen declined, returned to Eheji, um, and the shogun himself. Uh, a couple of years after he met Dogen, um, not only started the temple, but uh, became a monk before he died. So it shows the, you know, interest, maybe sincere, maybe, maybe not as sincere, but they definitely had, uh, the Shogun definitely had an interest in, um, in, uh, in promoting uh, the Zen school at this stage of, um, of Japanese uh, religious and social history. So let's, um, Let's take a look at some of the specific issues in a little more uh, detail while I correct a couple of uh, typos. <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, right from the start, Dogen's birth, already uh, some very interesting issues uh, come up because um, the, the Denko Loco in 1300 created the story that most people uh, follow today one way or another, whether it's the traditional sectarian sources that are uh, refashioned today, or whether it's uh, more secularized sources, or let's keep in mind that most of the secular scholars, so-called secular scholars, are still affiliates of either Soto or Rinzai Zen, and so most, and and so they may have access to grind for and against uh, promoting the special qualities of Dogen, but. According to the uh, story that got created, Dogen is, uh, you know, is very fortunate uh, birth in some ways and very unfortunate. He was, his father was from the imperial family, ninth generation of the imperial family. Uh, his father was in the uh, emerging uh, warrior clan, a very powerful figure. And um, his mother was, um, um, not the first wife of the father, um, but she was from an aristocratic uh, family, the Fujiwaras, that had enjoyed much of the social prestige for the previous couple of hundred years. So Dogen is linked to the three most powerful uh, clans in Japan. Um, fact or fiction? Well, uh, you know, the symbolism becomes very powerful that he had that um, uh, power and prestige. He had that social capital, so to speak, and abandoned it to pursue the Dharma. Um, and it was right in, you know, he's born in 1200. So just when the new era, the Kamakura era of Japan is getting started. Um, now, you know, I mentioned that, uh, you know, Dogen himself is creating his own narrative in a lot of ways. And in addition to the, uh, the Denkoloko, the Kenzeki that we talked about, and here's a list of some of the modern um, um, scholars who, who've looked at, who've written more historiographical biographies, but they're still very much um, 
uh, well, the, especially these first two, Okubo and Naka Seko, uh, were still very much linked to the Soto sect. And then critical Buddhism, which I don't have a lot of time for, but that's a kind of wild card because this was Soto-connected scholars who liked Dogen very much, were, were somewhat critical of modern Soto Zen in Japan for some social issues, discrimination against the outcasts, especially at that time in the 1980s when their movement started. But, uh, but and they've kind of helped shape some of the debates. But, you know, uh, uh, Dogen only references his, his early days, you know, as, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, to a small degree. Um, but what Dogen does add to this early narrative is the sense that he was he was uh, haunted by impermanence. He was haunted by a sense of tragedy and sorrow when first his father and then his um, uh, died at age two and his mother at age seven. And he he sensed uh, the meaning of uh, transiency very deeply and was looking for a solution and that he found that uh, among the Tendai monks, uh, with the concept of original enlightenment, they seem to focus more on an eternal truth rather than a current or applicable to current concrete life situations sense of truth, which is, I think, you know, a brief summation of Dogen's single main contribution to the Buddhist philosophy is to say, okay, you know, abstraction doesn't count and has to be true to the here and now moment. And, you know, when he says that in what we could call the theoretical writings or the doctrinal writings, you know, it becomes much more powerful, I think, when we see it also working out in his own life. And he had a sense, I think, uh, of doing that. Now, just to talk about the point of Zen narratives a little bit, I think this was one of the things that had made Zen very popular in China beginning in the, especially in the um, 1100s or so, 100, 150 years before Dogen, went to, um, went to China himself, that you see the f- famous teachers going through similar kinds of stages where they often had an elite kind of upbringing or in, contrary-wise, there, there are figures like Huinang who were, you know, who were impoverished and, and, and Huinang was supposedly illiterate. Of course, he's an earlier figure, but you know, you get the contrary type of uh, story that people who were down and out become Buddhists. But but you do get a lot of the Zen people. They were born into prestigious Confucian families, and then they realize that doesn't cover the truth of what they're experiencing, and they give it up. They don't necessarily use the word great doubt, but doubt does enter into the discourse quite a bit in the writings from uh, in the Zen writings about particular. Uh, masters' lives from that period. And Dogen, I think, had, you know, that was one of his ingenious um, innovations for Japan is that he's bringing that kind of um, um, narrative making uh, to his particular story. And of course, leaders of the, of, uh, you know, Nichiren and Honen and those other leaders had their own powerful stories as well. So, you know, the, I won't go into detail about, about the rest of these categories, about, all, you know, all these categories. I'll pick out a couple more. Um, how, how much longer do I have? Well, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Okay. So I'll, I'll pick out a few. Um, and then discussion. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I'll pick out a few examples. 
Um, so one thing that we find in Denkoloku and Kenzeki is the idea that Dogen read the entire Buddhist canon. Uh, you know, trip, Tripitaka uh, is the Sanskrit word. Um, Daizokyo is the uh, is the Japanese term for it. That was used. That was starting to be used, and and um, back then in China and Japan, and then and then it still is. That's kind of the the, the main term that's used today. Um, great repository or great treasury of the teachings, and um, well, you know, would somebody have? Uh, and uh, according to if you if you look at the these records, he would have read that he would have read it a couple of times back and forth in his um, early years here. This is in you know in his in his teenage years um, when he was first studying in Tendai, and then after he went to. Um, um, Asai's temple, Keninji, where he practiced Zazen, but Keninji was still, you know, many people still say it's, it, it was the first Zen temple in Kyoto, but it was still a kind of Tendai based temple where they would have studied the, um, the canon that was um, uh, uh, standardized in, in the Tendai school. But one of the interesting things is like, what exactly constituted that canon? It's nice to say the canon, um, but what was in it? Was it inclusive of Indian writings, partially or comprehensively? I mean, they would have been translated into Chinese, of course, and not appeared in Sanskrit. They would have been entirely translated into Chinese. But how complete was that? Uh, we, we really don't have a record of that. If you look at a variety, from a variety of angles in Japanese Buddhism at the time, we don't know exactly what it was that would have been in the canon. Now we do know a little bit more about what was happening in, in, in China because the canon formation had become a very important feature of Buddhist society at that time. And there were several different versions of it, but we don't know exactly if the Japanese were updated on that because there was a big gap. I mean, when Dogen gets to China, one of the things was that he was, you know, there weren't there hadn't been a lot of travel from China, Japan to China for various reasons for a while. So we don't know. Uh, you know, they were Japan was receiving updates, but we don't know. Now, the other thing we don't know that's, I think, more relevant is to what extent was he reading Zen material, which was still rather new in China, including koans. Including, you know, the records of the life stories of Rinzai and and, you know, Mazu and, and all these other famous figures. But to what extent would he have been exposed to that when he was still in Japan? Would that have been part of the canon? I mean, we don't even know if that was part of the canon in, in China, because when, when they were first forming the canon in China and there was a big addition in 983, Zen was still a very fledgling movement. And it's very unlikely that, that its uh, materials would have been included. But 100 years later, Yes, Zen probably would have been included, but that's already taking us to, um, you know, the around the 1100s. And did that filter into Japan? Now, we do know that Asai, who traveled to China before Dogen, going down here, did, did uh, bring back some of the Zen materials, of course. But he really focused on discipline, uh, tea, 
uh, you know, drinking tea. Uh, he has that book on tea. He doesn't really focus from uh, on precepts, and he has a very different view of the precepts than than Dogen. He doesn't really focus on um, on koans or individual masters. If you, if we read what's available for a side, so could Dogen have gotten exposed to this before he he went to um, China and Japan and. Did he meet Asai? I mean, this is a very interesting story because probably he didn't. Asai died in 1215. If you match up the dates, Dogen would have been in Kyoto. Asai was traveling because he had temples in uh, in Kamakura and he had temples in Kyushu. <coughs> and he traveled quite a bit between his temples. Very, very unlikely to say that they would have met um, or crossed paths and even if he didn't meet him. But you know, that sets into the story at some point, and um, um, we have to uh, reckon with that. Now, one of the things I came across only um, a couple of years ago, and um, and that was that, that Miozen had a record uh, uh, of his own that's, that's either got corrupted or lost or whatever, but there's, <laughs> there's references to his record that are available, and... He says that Dogen did meet Asai and that Asai gave him a koan, which is a, um, koan uh, number 69 in the um, Record of Serenity or Book of Serenity, if you get a chance to track that down later. And that Dogen um, was so moved by it that his, his robe was uh, soaked in tears because he was so excited. And, you know, if you read the Dogen stories, he he must've used a lot of ropes because a lot of them got soaked in tears to be a little facetious by different events. Um, when, like when he first met Rujing, but anyway, Miozen supposedly documented a, a meeting, but you know, could that have been manufactured later? Um, I, I was, I was very interested to see it. Um, because, um, according to this, uh, uh according to this record, that, um, uh, you know, Miozen would have been the one person who would have had the knowledge, had, you know, had sufficient knowledge. But look, Asai dies in 1215. Probably Dogen didn't become a disciple of Miozen and, and get installed at Keninji until 1216. All right. That means seven years went by, maybe eight or nine years. I think at one point, Dogen refers to nine years of the coming and going of spring and autumn or something like that before he went. Almost nothing is available about those years. Uh, obviously, he was doing Zazen. And obviously, he and Miozen built a desire to go to, to go to China. Why exactly? Well, you know, China was opening up more. I mean, Asai did not start a wave of travel to China. Um, and, um, and so by the 1220s, it was still pretty rare, or at least what's rare is the records that we have. It was a lot more common, apparently from other kinds of sources we can tell. It's just like these people who went, were traveling there, weren't either, weren't returning to Japan or didn't become famous in Japan. And so we don't know much about them, but when Dogen got to China, he did see other Japanese, uh, monks there. He did see, um, Korean monks, of course, there. Um, okay, so I think the 
you know, the, the life story of Dogen, the early days of his birth and upbringing and his relation to these three uh, families was uh, very important. And this whole uh, Asai uh, Myozen question is uh, very important. And, you know, some of these things you think are important, but when, you know, are we ever going to be able to uh, zero in in a definitive way on some of those topics? Now, let's go back to Fujiwara for a second, because his mother, you know, apparently was uh, was very attractive woman, but she had um, an unfortunate romantic experience. And then they say that her father wanted to marry her off to a prestigious family. So she became like the third wife of uh uh, 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 of Dogen's father, um, and um, and that when when both parents died, the Fujiwaras were eager to um, support Dogen, and they offered him a court uh, career and not to become uh, Tendai. When he became Tendai, guess what? He found. A lot of the leading figures were members of the Fujiwara family. The Fujiwara family was so well-connected, its connections went into the Buddhist world as well. So it's hard to stitch all this theme together, but he had connections with the Fujiwaras, and he had disconnections with the Fujiwaras. Were they upset with him for for having turned down his um, offer for a secular role um, in the early years um, or not. And of course, the Fujiwaras weren't monolithic either. There were branches of the Fujiwaras. The reason uh, this becomes important is if we go down to the issue that Taigen raised of um, Dogen's um, travels up north. Because um, several things that happen here, and I realized one of them I, I left, I forgot to put on the list, but while he's very successful in Kyoto, he become, uh, befriends Hatano Yoshishige, who is a samurai patron who owned the land where Eiji was built and also had connections with the shogun. And Dogen gave a couple of sermons, either in Hatano's um, residence or in Hatano's temple, which was like the only time he ever preached outside of his own temple. But what exactly that connection was, we're not 100% sure. Um, But he also had a connection with monks, including Ejo from the so-called the Ruma school, which was like the earliest school of Zen in Japan before Asai, that had been outlawed for various reasons. And Asai himself was against it. And, and uh, Dogen seemed to be trying to find a compromise because he did accept followers from that school. And their temple was located, you know, like walking distance away from where Eheji was built. So that becomes a very interesting and complicated issue. But another issue that I should add here is that there was a, another famous Zen traveler to China who spent six years there, who left in 1235, you know, almost a decade after Dogen returned, named Annie Benin, who started uh, what's known as Tofukuji Temple, which is a prominent temple in Kyoto today. And Annie Benin had Fujiwara support. 
That's clear. And it also seems to be clear that Dogen did have some branch of Fujiwara support, but this was overwhelmed by probably by any Benin's um, support. So when any Benin returned in 1241, they started to build Tofukuji Temple. It dwarfed the size of Dogen's temple in Kyoto. And so to what extent are these, um, you know, intricate details uh, uh, affecting the situation? To what extent does it really matter for us today? You know, that, that of course, that question could, could be asked. I'll come back to that in a moment. So he does end up in what was then known as Echizen province. Today, uh, it's called uh, Fukui Prefecture. Um, and um, the... Um, 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 and, and very successful there. He, his teachings do take a seem, do take, seem to take a turn to more emphasis on precepts, on discipline, on rules. Um, uh, and that's not only true in the Heishingi, which specifically is on the rules, uh, but also evident in some passages in Shobogenzo and extensive record from that time. But then the Shogun kind of invites him or demands that he come to visit him in Kamakura for six months. Um, now, Dogen turns down that offer, and apparently Hatano was not pleased. And let's, let me uh, finish the uh, lecture part by, okay, I better stop this share. I want to go back to the uh, other work. Okay. So, um, okay. So let's take a look at uh, Dogen after he would have returned from Kamakura in twelve forty. Eight, and then lived five more years until he he died. Now, um, if you you know, uh, a lot of people see the uh, kind of biopic that goes by the title Zen that was made about Dogen's life in 2009. There's a, a subtitled version that's been around quite a bit, and I'm, I'm sure people have seen it, or, or you getting you can get a chance to see it pretty easily on online, I think, and. Um, you know, that had some strong points and some weaker points, I think, that film. But one th- the, the, the main thing that bothered me was that by the time he, he um, came back from Kamakura in 1248, next scene was like he's dying. And as if five years went by without any, any um, important developments in it. And that oversight, I think, even though... Um, Soto Zen people were uh, not necessarily in charge of the whole uh, production of the movie because there's some other issues about that. But they were, uh, any, at least they were in charge of the of the script that was written. Um, and you know why leave that out? Now a narrative gets created by some what I would call not necessarily opponents of Dogen, but some um, you know Rinzai school rival risks. Uh, <laughs> Uh, standpoints where they say, look, Dogen wasn't so great once he got to a Heiji after all, you know, and look, his career kind of fell apart. He, 
He didn't get along with the Shogun. He comes back. He's all disappointed. And then he dies. And, you know, that movie tended to support that. But I think that actually in Dogen's final years, those final five years, he was quite, quite productive. He wrote, he wrote, you know, some new material for Shobogenzo that sometimes is referred to as the 12 fascicle Shobogenzo because it was a special edition of it. He did do quite a bit in the extensive record. Um, and he was still editing something like Genjo Kowan uh, that he had written back in 12 uh, uh, and Bendoa that he had written back in the 1230s. He's still editing those until the end of his life. So, you know, even even in those last four or five years, he still accomplished quite a bit. And we don't want to overlook that. But it's interesting how these stories that maybe are superfluous, maybe they're they're important. Maybe they're a distraction or not get into the picture. This story to the left is that there was a monk named Gemyo who Dogen had assigned to stay behind and, you know, kind of negotiate exit strategy when he left Kamakura with, with the Shogun's uh, uh, representatives. And apparently he heads back to Aheji a month or two later and says, guess what? You know, I, um, uh, Shogun gave gave some land for us, and I accepted it. And Dogen was so incensed and infuriated that he he dug up the guy's meditation seat and he kicked him out, burned all his possessions, and kicked him out. Expulsion, excommunication, and they're digging up his meditation seat in this in this view, so that nobody could sit in that spot again. Uh, on the more uh, kind of mythical, supernatural side. Multicolored clouds float over Eheji on the right side. Uh, he gets a vision of the Arhats who kind of zap him with divine energy. I think we could say if you're look, kind of looking at this objectively with the light emanating from the Arhats to um, Dogen and his assembly. And supposedly Dogen wrote... Um, a ritual text called the Lakan uh, Koshki that is kind of memorializing the Arhats and is still performed um, at, um, at, at many Soto simple temples today. There is also Dogen Koshki, which are memorials about Dogen's life and Keizan Koshki that are also performed. Um, okay. This is a little more down to earth. This is the famous moon viewing um, uh, poem that Dogen wrote in this case. The scribe is somewhat separate than Dogen. So Dogen is sitting in the Zen abbot's uh, high seat, viewing the moon, uh, but the actual writing of it is done by um, uh, a disciple. And that poem is inscribed in a, uh, a portrait of Dogen that, that is still held in Soto temples today. Um, okay, one of the interesting things is that on the right side, Dogen was offered the purple robe, which was a symbol in China and Japan of acknowledgement by, by the government authorities of the Buddhist teacher's greatness. And they say that Dogen uh, turned it down two times, and he said up in the mountains, the monkeys would laugh at him if he was wearing a purple robe. But on the third occasion, he does accept it. And on the left side, Hatano, this is, this is the year 1250, has sent a New Year's present of a new set of the Buddhist canon. You know, this is very interesting uh, because 
we find that in those final years, Dogen was citing Indian Buddhist texts much more than Zen texts. Like the last writings of Dogen are all about Indian Buddhist uh, teachings and and stories and Jataka tales and uh, you know Abhidharma and those kind of materials rather than Zen. He stops quoting uh, the Zen teachings quite a bit and uh, not exclu- totally, but uh, very much diminished. So. Um, Um, I, I like this one on the right because this shows uh, a lecture that he would have given um, at a Heiji in those final years. And it shows that the monastic community is on the inside of the temple, but other uh, lay persons or workers at the temple and, and travelers uh, would have attended as well um, and, and uh, sat outside. Um, and then to finish off, um, Here's uh, Dogen being taken down to uh, Kyoto for medical treatment. Uh, In this one, he writes um, a passage from the Lotus Sutra when he's staying at a layperson's home because he can't be at a temple. But he says, look, you know, Lotus Sutra says Buddha Dharma is everywhere. So so I'm happy to be here. And then he dies in the meditation in the Zazen position. And they 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 take his body back to Eheji. Okay, so I will stop there, and we can have some uh, discussion. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, uh, a whirlwind tour of the of the life of Dogen. A lot yeah. of interesting stuff. Uh, so, comments, questions, responses. Anyone, please feel free. For people who are not visible on the screen, you can go to the participants window and uh, raise your hand. It says raise hand at the bottom. And Douglas, you're um, up first. Thank you, Stephen. Um, I have a question not so much about, that's not really about the events of Dogen's life, but I was wondering, do you have a view about how good Dogen's spoken Chinese was? How well he could communicate with Ru Jing and the Vanessa community in China and how much he used spoken Chinese in his own teaching back in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a great question. A perennial question. I know I've talked to Taigen about that over the years. And uh, I think, I, I think I'm in basic agreement, uh, um, which is that, you know, it's hard to say for sure because, um, you know, uh, we didn't have recorded Zoom sessions back then to look back at. Um, yes, but the assumption would be, um, considering other travelers to uh, China and Chinese who came to Japan, you know, like that Kenshoji Temple uh, that was offered to Dogen, you know, that was open when that was opened up a few years later, it was a Chinese immigrant monk, and immigrant monks coming to Japan was a big factor and then travel back and forth between China and Japan um, was a big factor. Let me, let me talk about that for a moment and come back to the main question. So by the early 1300s, you know, 50 years after Dogen died, travel had enhanced quite a bit going in both directions. There were, but there were some Chinese monks who, who never went to Japan, but had a lot of Japanese students in China. 
And sometimes they stayed for five, 10, 20 years. Sometimes they you know, never went back. Sometimes they became leaders of temples in China. That's a very interesting thing. So we got to assume a lot of those did know how to speak Chinese. By, by that 1300 period, teaching Chinese as a spoken language was going to have become much more common in, in, in Japan, especially in Kyoto, because you had all these Chinese visitors now. And they would have demanded, okay, I'm, I'm not going to bother to learn Japanese. And some of them said that, you know, you can write characters for me. I can understand them. But if you want to study with me, you're going to have to not only learn Chinese, but learn it really well, be able to write poetry and so forth. And some of the famous Japanese monks of that period, the 1300s, like Muso Soseki and Daito, um, you know, wrote a lot in Chinese and they wrote about China, but they never went to China. So we probably assume that like Dogen, they're Chinese and Dogen did go to China, of course, but still they probably were common ground that they had limited ability to speak Chinese. Um, and then, but then there were people in between, you know, both Chinese side and Japanese side who did learn each other's languages, you know, but they invented the term called brush talk. So you could understand the written and the, and the, Japanese would know how to write written Chinese and follow the you know Chinese grammar in writing, and Dogen knew that without necessarily having you know day to day spoken Chinese, so they could so they could write to each other. And uh, obviously, there were going to be other people in the room usually who could translate and help help facilitate the conversation. But I think when if we go back to Dogen, you know what we understand about Dogen. Um, you know, he, he, you know, and, and this goes back to the whole, also the issue of the, of the Buddhist canon. Look, these people were trained in not only reading, but memorizing vast amounts of, of Chinese uh, writing, you know, but, you know, people compare it to uh, Latin or something, it, you know, it was kind of a dead language for them. It was a literary language. It was the classics. It was a matter of philology, not everyday life. Uh, so, when Dogen gets there, you know, there's a, one little uh, passage in the Gyoji fascicle where he talks about, hey, um, Taoist shamans, foreigners, women, they were kind of kept to the side. It's, it's only a sentence or two uh, in Gyoji where he, ta- when he, I think at the end of um, the passage where he's talking about uh, Ruxing's life. And, um, you know, so one interesting is, well, how did he break through? How did he talk to Ruxing on a regular basis? How did they record those conversations? Um, for, first of all, if he was a lowly foreigner, but then, you know, if he didn't speak um, Chinese well. So I'm flipping it around now and saying, look, if he has the re- recorded conversations, now maybe there was a go between, maybe somebody kept the records and then. You know, uh, when Dogen got back to uh, Japan, either he or, you know, one of his followers and, you know, Jokowen was the Chinese monk who followed Dogen back to Japan, He, you know, a year or so later and and was a longstanding member and eventually opened Hokyoji, Hokyoki, um, excuse me, Hokyoji Temple near Eiji. So uh, no definitive answer. I would lean towards no, he didn't know it very well. It was cleaned up by editors. You know, um, his lectures in in Chinese in, in Chinese and in Japan were probably um, transcribed retrospectively. In other words, he he gave it in in a 
and kind of a high level Japanese that's closer to Chinese, but not really Chinese. So I think it was a struggle, and and not only for Dogen, but uh, for that period. Now, people, some people say that in these examples worldwide, of uh, you know, because this some something similar happens in many religious and you know literary traditions. Uh, out of the miscommunications, sometimes out of the mistakes, um, and Dogen says, you know, we we make. Uh, the right mistake sometimes, you know, uh, a lot of positive communication could have taken place. But if we had to uh, pick an answer to that, I would say uh, he his ability was probably uh, not, you know, uh, was was probably limited. And, and most of that uh, would have been editing. Now, the final example is that we have the poems written in Chinese, where, which are very complicated and uh, they're an extensive record. Because Chinese poetry, you know, had intense uh, rhyme schemes and all these grammatical rules that were over and above the typical grammar that, you know, you had to uh, learn, you know, you had to know really well to, to try to do that. And, you know, in, in the extensive record in that section, we see that Dogen started writing those poems when he was in China. And sometimes they have the headline. Dogen rhymes along with so-and-so, which was the typical thing, like some X person, like an anonymous monk or a lay person comes to Dogen and says, here's my poem about the death of my uh, son or, or about my, um, uh, you know, or about some other event. My son, uh, in some cases, like my son passed the exams. And so here's my poem about it. And then Dogen would have had to write a poem. The person Responding would write a poem that had to use the same rhyme scheme as the first poem. Now, we don't have those first poems in the record, but we have Dogen's poems that they say he was rhyming along with. So to have done that, you know, you had to have a profound knowledge. But again, that's a literary knowledge rather than the conversational. Thanks. I appreciate it. We have time for a couple more um, questions, responses. Uh, Paul, Paul and then Jonathan, uh, from what I see. Um, that was about the same time as the Mongol invasion in China, if I'm not mistaken. And, and that, that seems to have made a big influence on Chinese culture at that time. Did any of that overflow into this communication between China and Japan, or was it too distant to be of importance? Um, yes, uh, the uh, the Mongol invasion was, uh, you know, 1270s, 1281. And um, so that was a little bit after Dogen's time. But I think um, it's clear that Mongols had, um, you know, from from around 1215, when Genghis Khan was first um, establishing his empire, um, you know, some, uh, let's say, um, 50, 60 years before Kublai Khan was responsible for trying to invade Japan. So in the, you know, in those intervening years, uh, Mongol influence was, was uh, greater and greater. Now let, let me get off Dogen for a second and just mention something about this. Um, um, there was a significant um, Soto school faction located in Beijing um, now, Beijing at that time in the 1200s, um, before the Mongols, you know, created the uh, their um, 
their empire and incorporated China in 1279, Beijing at that time was not part of China. It had been ruled by different northern tribes before the Mongols. The most recent was uh, the Jin, which had um, taken over uh, Beijing in the late, um, uh, let's see, well, in the 1100s. And um, and uh, what was the Buddhist role there? Well, the Jin were favorable towards Buddhism, and they invited uh, some uh, Zen teachers, both Rinzai and um, and Soto, and um, the there was a Soto monk Wansong who was like the main author for the Book of Serenity, and he was located. Uh, he had moved from mainland China, or when I say mainland China, let me put it this way: he had moved from what was part of the Chinese Empire up to Beijing at the request of the Jin Emperor. Uh, in the late um, 1100s. And then, and then Genghis Khan is now taking over. And one of um, uh, this guy Wansong's main disciples was from yet another tribe that had become very friendly with, um, with Genghis Khan and encouraged Wansong to, uh, to, this was a chance to promote Zen for the Khans that you could see were going to be taking over. And Wansong and then his main disciple a few years later did interact very positively with the Mongols. And, um, and you know, it was kind of a high point of Soto Zen. So uh, the, the um, but, but my understanding is that Dogen himself would not have known about those developments taking up and taking, uh, you know, ha- taking place in Beijing at that time. Period. Even though it overlapped, you know, his his four years of travel and, you know, other connections that he had by receiving travelers from China. It seems like it was still kind of two different worlds. But, you know, it's very uh, it's very interesting to see that Soto Zen was not um, had support in other parts of um, of China um, and north of China uh, during that time period. And so. You know, the Mongols kind of like an early version of globalization in the sense that they were kind of spreading things, you know, by conquering and and, you know, and, you know, recent studies have shown that Genghis and Kublai Khan, you know, as monstrous as they were, if you were their enemy, um, were uh, very, uh, you know, kind of civilized in the sense of tolerant towards religions, trying to promote translations of of the of the of the text, trying to incorporate uh uh, Buddhist teachings into uh, civil law and so forth. So it was a very, uh, it, you know, the Mongol, a whole Mongol period is a very interesting one that need, needs to be looked at. Um, also, you know, it's interesting because at the same time period, um, Zen was going to uh, Korea and um, they started uh, writing koan collections in the early and mid uh, 1200s, just overlapping uh, when Dogen was starting to use koans in Japan and when Wansong was up in Beijing with his koan collections. So, you know, the East Asia linkages were quite profound in that time period. Um, Jonathan. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you, uh, Dr. Hein. Um, uh, one one thing that you mentioned that uh, really caught my attention was uh, the relationship that Dogen had with uh, Hatano, and uh, kind of kind of religious political rivalry that maybe the Hojo and the Minamotos had with the Fujiwaras. Um, and I was wondering if if you know Dogen might have been involved within that uh, kind of struggle between the two clans, uh, and you know maybe to what extent or if. Any of his writings indicate uh, that he had some kind of uh, affiliation with that with that camp. Well, uh, I think uh, which camp? <laughs> uh, the Minamoto camp, the Hojo side. Well, okay. So actually, the Hojo side adds another dimension to it. Okay. So because the Hojo, you know, so the when the Fujiwara, um, uh, I guess the term regency is often used. Like, you know, they, they, they had more power than the imperial system, partly through intermarriage with the imperial family. And the Fujiwara was kind of predominant. Uh, and then the Minamoto, you know, uh, challenged them and broke them down. And that was the original uh, shogun period in the early 1200s. But then, meanwhile, the Minamotos were falling to the, uh, to the Hojos. And so by the time, you know, when, when Dogen was, was going to China, uh, you know, one of the powerful uh, Minamoto figures was assassinated in public in Kamakura two years before. And, you know, one feeling was that Dogen had a loyalty to the Minamotos because he would have probably grown up with some of them. You know, so some of the Minamoto leaders around 1220, a few years before he's going to China in, in, in Japan, might have been, you know, childhood friends with Dogen. That's that's an idea, and and that Zen movie kind of hits at that uh, idea. But it's it's very hard to pin it down. But then, then you get, you know, if you look at Dogen, okay, then some years later, in the late, uh, you know, around twelve forty, so fifteen twenty years later, now somebody like Hatano, he's a local daimyo. He's not a shogun. He's a daimyo, let's say, and he comes from the west, but he. Uh, he, you know, consolidates land in various areas and then he becomes important. But, but by then, now the new Shogun clan, the Hojos had come on strong. And, um, you know, the, the guy who invited Dogen, Hojo uh, Tokiyori, he's, he's one of a series that very much supported uh, Buddhism and kind of like, you know, we could say kind of crudely, hey, they're, they're guilt tripped out of all the violence that they've been part of, and they're looking for remorse, repentance, and, you know, a way out. At the same time, going back to the Mongols, you know, it's often been said that, that the Zen <clears throat> people gave the, that was, another, that was a later Hojo figure, also interested in Buddhism, and that Buddhism, in this case, mainly uh, Rinzai school of Buddhism, gave them the courage to stand up to the Mongol invasion, because at some point a decision had to be made, are we going to resist this or is it too overwhelming and we have to just uh, submit? And, and, um, and so, you know, Zen has given some credit to the Hojos to stand up for it. So it, it's complicated. Is it, How much is Dogen affected by the Fujiwara versus the Minamoto and then the Hojo uh, divisions? Yeah. I, th- I mean, the more I think about it, I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. It's just like one of these things like, you know, there's black holes and then there's like gray holes, I guess, gray holes where you can learn a little bit more, but you're still not going to have something definitive. But I think it really makes sense to say that Dogen as, um, you know, that 
you know, the story is a nice story of, you know, a lead person who gives it up for the Dharma and that not, not taking anything away from that story, his ups and downs of his career probably can be matched up with some of these uh, rivalries. So it takes on a whole other level of kind of symbolism or coding. And, and I, I, um, yeah, so that's what Sorry. I have to yeah. Thank you. Sorry, if I can ask very briefly a follow-up question. Um, I remember you mentioned Eni uh, Benin's uh, temple in Kyoto, which was built and was much bigger than Dogen's. Was his his was was he also in the Zen school? Yeah, any any Benin. Um, yeah, I mean that, that's where it gets very interesting when you look at uh, China, because in China, you know, they talk about five mountains. There were five very powerful Zen temples in that area, and um, uh, Asai was at the temple that Dogen went to. That's how they knew to go there. But that was in the uh, 1190s. By the time you get to Eni Benin in the 1230s, he ends up going to a temple known as uh, Jingshan that's closer to the city of Hangzhou, that's a little bit to the west. And that apparently had become number one temple. Now, very interesting story where Dogen goes to Jingshan himself and um, doesn't like it there. He says, oh, this guy, you know, he has a dialogue with the teacher and he says the guy's a fake. He doesn't really understand. He's just he's just mouthing the words. And um, and he and that's partly what heads him back to. Um, to discover Rujing because he meet, he meets a mysterious figure in the road. It says, oh, you better go back and find, you know, the temple you started. With that's the one to go to because now they have Rujing there and he'll help you out. And, you know, that's what worked out. But, okay, so that's in the 1220s. Now, Eni Benin goes to that Jingshan temple and he has a wonderful time. And in fact, you know, that becomes kind of mainstream in Kyoto. Uh, if we look at the historical records, it is clear, uh, I think, that what happened at Jingshan was that it had this big reputation. It had kind of fallen on hard times and there was a new reform minded um, leader um, called Wu Shun, who, um, you know, enhanced meditation, enhanced the precepts and, you know, build up the, you know, raise money for the temple buildings, all those kinds of things that Dogen did at Heiji and other people have done, you know, other, other leaders were doing in China and Japan. And he had done all those things. So by the time any Benin got there, it seems to be confirmed, like it's not, he didn't just make up his own, you know, narrative that was far-fetched. It seems to be confirmed that that temple had now become number one in, in China. And, and, the, and the temple Dogen was at after Rujing died, that started to fall back on harder times. And so the, you know, the pendulum had swung towards, um, towards Rinzai. Um, now, one thing about Tofukuji, it took me a long time to understand this, because I think, I think Annie Benin came back in 1241, and they say uh, Tofukuji was built in 1243, and it you know, kind of eclipsed the, it dwarfed the size of Dogen's temple, which was nearby, and Dogen left Kyoto. But actually, you know, when you look closer at it, um, apparently it took some years to build Tofukuji Temple, Annie Benin's temple at Tofukuji. It didn't, it didn't get built overnight. The, the way they sort of act like Heiji was built overnight uh, or it, well, it took a few months, but I mean, this took years apparently. So that didn't really become, you know, that huge, a temple compound 
in, um, you know, for like five or six years after Dogen had already left Kyoto. So it's, it's less likely that just that would have been a main factor to have scared him off. But going back to the question of the Fujiwaras, Annie Benin had the Fujiwara support. He had this support from the branch of the Fujiwaras that Dogen, that was connected with Dogen's mother and that had offered him, you know, as a child, hey, we'll take care of you. And he had rejected to, you know, become a monk. And were they still holding a grudge after all those years? Well, we've got to figure like, look, the Fujiwaras were just barely holding on to their prestige at that time because the Shogun, you know, approach had had taken over. And, you know, um, and so all these things are very intricate, uh, but, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's very uh, fascinating to consider all those possibilities. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen, uh, for, for this uh, comprehensive view of uh, different aspects of Dogen's life. Uh, we have to uh, stop now, but we'll do uh, some chanting and chant uh, and, and do a chant that Dogen wrote. So Ruben, can you, uh, Present the chanting, please. All right, I'm going to bring up that on the screen right now. Wonderful. We will together chant the repentance verse three times, followed by the Jijuyu Zamai. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Jiju Yu For all ancestors and Buddhas who have been dwelling in and maintaining Buddha Dharma, practicing upright sitting in Jiju Yu Samadhi is the true path for opening up enlightenment. Both in India and in China, those who attained enlightenment have followed this way. This is because each teacher and each disciple has been intimately and correctly transmitting this subtle method and receiving and maintaining its true spirit. According to the unmistakably handed down tradition, the straightforward Buddha Dharma that has been simply transmitted is supreme among the supreme. 
From the time you begin practicing with a teacher, the practices of incense burning, bowing, nenbutsu, repentance, and reading sutras are not at all essential. Just sit, dropping off body and mind. When one displays the Buddha mudra with one's whole body and mind, sitting upright in this samadhi even for a short time, everything in the entire Dharma world becomes Buddha mudra, and all spaces in the universe completely becomes enlightenment. Therefore it enables Buddha Tathagatas to increase the Dharma joy of their own original grounds and renew the adornment of the way of awakening. Simultaneously, all living beings of the Dharma world in the ten directions and six realms become clear and pure in body and mind, realize great emancipation, and their own original face appears. At that time, all things together awaken to supreme enlightenment and utilize Buddha body immediately go beyond the culmination of awakening and sit upright under the regal Bodhi tree. At the same time, they turn the incomparable great Dharma wheel and begin expressing ultimate and unfabricated profound prajna. There is a path through which the unsurpassed complete enlightenment of all things returns to the person in Zazen, and that person and the enlightenment of all things intimately and imperceptibly assist each other. Therefore this Zazen person without fail drops off body and mind, cuts away previously tainted views and thoughts, awakens genuine Buddha Dharma, universally helps the Buddha work in each place, as numerous as atoms, where Buddha Tathagatas teach and practice, and widely influences practitioners who are going beyond Buddha, thereby vigorously exalting the Dharma that goes beyond Buddha. At this time, because earth, grasses and trees, fences and walls, tiles and pebbles, and all things in every direction in the universe carry out Buddha work, so everyone receives the benefit of wind and water movement caused by this functioning, and all are imperceptibly helped by the wondrous and incomprehensible influence of Buddha to actualize the enlightenment at hand. Since those who receive and use this water and fire extend the Buddha influence of original enlightenment, all who live and talk with these people also share and universally unfold the boundless Buddha virtue, and they circulate the inexhaustible, ceaseless, incomprehensible, and immeasurable Buddha Dharma within and without the whole Dharma world. However, these various mutual influences do not mix into the perceptions of this person sitting, because they take place within stillness without any fabrication, and they are enlightenment itself. If practice and enlightenment were separate, as people commonly believe, it would be possible for them to perceive each other. But that which is associated with perceptions cannot be the standard of enlightenment, because deluded human sentiment cannot reach the standard of enlightenment. Moreover, although both body and mind, although both mind and object appear and disappear within stillness, because this takes place in the realm of Jijuyu, self-receiving and self-employing, without moving a speck of dust or destroying a single form, extensive Buddha work and profound, subtle Buddha influence are carried out. The grass, trees, and earth affected by this functioning together radiate great brilliance and endlessly expound the deep, wondrous Dharma. 
Grasses and trees, fences and water walls demonstrate and exalted for the sake of living beings, both ordinary and sage. In turn, living beings, both ordinary and sage, express and unfolded for the sake of grasses and trees, fences and walls. The realm of self-awakening and awakening others is fundamentally endowed with the quality of enlightenment, with nothing lacking, and allows a standard of enlightenment to be actualized ceaselessly. Therefore, even if only one person sits for a short time, because this zazen is one with all existence and completely permeates all time, it performs everlasting Buddha guidance within the inexhaustible Dharma world in the past, present, and future. Zazen is equally the same practice and the same enlightenment for both the person sitting and for all dharmas. The melodious sound continues to resonate as it echoes, not only during sitting practice, but before and after striking shunyata, which continues endlessly before and after a hammer hits it. Not only that, but all things are endowed with original practice within the original face, which is impossible to measure. You should know that even if all the Buddhas in the ten directions, as numerous as the sands of the Ganges River, together engage the full power of their Buddha wisdom, they could never reach the limit or measure or comprehend the virtue of one person's zazen. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the, the Jijuyu Zamai. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna paramita. Okay, usually we have a time now for just informal uh, hanging out and talking. I'm going to cut that a little bit short because we have a board meeting at one o'clock, which uh, people are welcome to come and observe. But uh, if you have any other questions or comments for Stephen while he's here, uh, please uh, feel free. Well, you know, um, while people are maybe, oh, was it Juan Pablo, did you? 
Yes, if you have time, that will be great. Just just a short. Uh, I wanted to know if you if you can mention a little bit about relationship between Dogen and maybe the indigenous traditions or animism or the Shinto, if there's any record or if there's any connection that we can find. Um, yeah, good. Um, well, to, to put a, a very broad context, um, I would say that, you know, Dogen's period was a time when uh, what's often called assimilationism uh, was in full uh, order in Japan, meaning that uh, Buddhism that had come to Japan from China had, uh, you know, we have to figure, because th this question comes up uh, quite a bit about, you know, what was there before Buddhism? And I think it's fair to say that, you know, Shinto was a more or less a label that got created in the Buddhist era. Like, you know, they were saying those are the local gods Those are the kami gods, and and we represent the Buddhas, and and the local gods are emanations or manifestations or reflections of the Buddhas, and that that's you know the idea of assimilationism in in a nutshell. Um, but you know, part of the assimilationism was to try to accommodate the need for um, showing some kind of uh, reverence towards or respect for however you put it, um, you know, the, the, the local deities. So, um, you know, in, if we go back to uh, China and the idea that Dogen uh, would have built a Heiji on the model of the Chinese temples and um, that he, that he saw there, um, there would be, you know, they would have had indigenous deities there, you know, uh, in China. Um, so, for example, there'd be a, a shrine hall to the earth god. The earth god would be the deity of that neighborhood or village or, you know, the territory where that, wherever that temple was built. Uh, they would have used principles of uh, geomancy, feng shui, to, uh, you know, accommodate the movement of the spiritual energies, including indigenous uh, deities um, in, the, in the mountains and forests uh, where many of the temples were built. Um, and, and um, so that, you know, that was that I mean, China was doing that, but Japan was also doing it in its own way. And then Chan or Zen was coming into uh, Japan as another layer of it where they were building on what the Chinese had done, incorporating some of the local uh, uh, beliefs and rituals and deities with what the Japanese had been doing for a while, which was, you know, accommodating. it. So I think it's fair to say that when we see um, uh, the God that came to Japan, Um, I came to China to give Dogen the medicine. That's supposed to be Inari, uh, a manifestation of the of the so-called fox deity, who was also a fertility symbol and, and identified with uh, growing rice and good fortune. And um, that you know that was a way, not necessarily for Dogen himself, because we don't know if he would have accepted that or that was a legend that came after. But it was a way for the Soto tradition to have accommodated. Hey, you know these these. Um, Indigenous forces are uh, in sync with what we're um, teaching. And in fact, look how they've come to, to rescue uh, Dogen. And the, the deity that was helping him copy the Blue Cliff record, uh, originally in the early legend version of Legends, that was a local Chinese uh, dragon type deity that guarded ports where, and, and where sutras were often being uh, translated and transported. 
Um, but then later it changes to that Mount Hoxon deity. That, that's the deity that came from the mountain near where the Ogens uh, Heiji temple was located. And so in the tradition, I think uh, you definitely see uh, an intention to um, um, consolidate uh, indigenous indigenous beliefs uh, with um, uh, with the teachings of uh, Dogen, and you know at a Heiji temple today you can see a shrine to Inari and some aspects of those um, of those indigenous uh, beliefs. What Dogen's own attitude would have been? I mean, I think GGU my kind of shows like, hey, uh, you know, they're all. Um, you know, manifestations uh, like the uh, the sands of the Ganges River and, and you know, but none of it amounts to as much as one person doing Zazen for one moment. So I don't know that he would have, you know, I think my, my gut feeling is like, hey, Dogen would have understood that this is part of what Zen in China was doing and what part of Japanese Buddhism is doing. And as a kind of skillful means, yes, like we can continue the assimilation. If I might, uh, there are places in Dogen's writings where he includes uh, the the native spirits. For example, in a Heishingi, he asks the garden manager to uh, make offerings to the earth spirit and and also to the wind spirit. And and then the the Hakuzan legend that that the Hakuzan spirit was the one who helped Dogen write the Blue Cliff Record. I think that was... part of something going on at Aheji early on, and it's certainly part of Aheji practice now that Aheji monks go and make offerings to Manhakasan. So it's a little bit of it is in Dogen himself. Yes, yes. Um, That's that's definitely right. And, you know, uh, but I like to contextualize that garden deity idea a little bit because um, um, you know, there's a koan, it's not one of the most famous koans, but it comes up uh, quite a bit where um, one of the early um, Zen masters uh, was um, uh, was traveling and um, when he got to the gates of the temple the abbot of that temple said hey I knew you were coming he said how'd you know I was coming and he said the garden deity told me he had seen you something like that and so the message was like a Zen master should not be um, spied on by a garden deity because his powers are, you know, his true spiritual powers are that much greater than the local garden deity. So if the garden deity did spot the guy, there was something deficient about it. And it was kind of a way of kind of one-upping the visitor versus the local abbot. And I think, you know, would Dogen and the others, how seriously they would have taken those, or did they take those as kind of tongue in cheek, you know, skillful means types of teachings that would appeal to certain people? You know, that that's a question. But yes, I, I do agree with Taigen for sure that, you know, it's, you know, there are indications in Dogen. I think, you know, uh, 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 some of the well known Western scholars like Bernard Four and, and Will Botterford, you know, have, have uh, brought that. Uh, point out and and, in, and of course in Tigan's uh, translations as well. If One thing, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say if there's, uh, we have limited time, but if there's one more comment or question, let me make a comment to you, if if, if I Please. may. 
um, you know, uh, when you're talking about the um, the dead, uh, recently dead uh, people, you know, there was the case of Thomas Cleary, and I know you posted an essay on on uh, on Tom Cleary, and um, you know, I, I don't think I mentioned to you that uh, friend of mine who had for a long time been the director of a Japanese museum that's in the South Florida area where there had been a Japanese community and they left the land and there's this great museum and garden here. Anyway, this guy had been in the Harvard class with Cleary, I guess they were classmates and he remembered him a little bit, but he didn't know, you know, this guy didn't go into Buddhist study. So he didn't quite know the whole story about Cleary. And I, I referred him to your, uh, your piece. Did you get, you get a lot of reactions on that? Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a monumental figure in American Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, there's time for if there's one more comment or question for Stephen. Um, Sorry, and, if, if I can, if I can ask uh, one more. Um, actually, uh, Dr. Hein, you mentioned earlier the uh, case number uh, sixty-nine from the Record of Serenity. I wanted to kind of bring up a another one from the Book of Serenity, case uh, fifty-two, which is the donkey. Uh, seize the well donkey and the well um you know i was i was kind of trying to wrap my head around that 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 koan and dogen's commentary on that koan because i believe at the end he he says that you know the, the the donkey sees the well the well sees the donkey the donkey sees the donkey and then the well sees the well um and i was wondering if uh, uh you can explain that briefly um you know what what dogen's trying to get to uh, with that play on words well actually um Yes, I, I'd have to um, thank, you know, that's, that's a great point. And, um, you know, that, that, that's the saying that originally goes back to Dongshan. Um, and um, I'd have to, I'd have to look at the different versions of it. But, um, you know, what I would say off the top of my head, as I recall, is that, you know, this is another, this is another example of Thogan just kind of not setting not standing pat with anything anybody previously has said. I mean, he's not the only Zen teacher to do that, but he, you know, he certainly uh, uh, is a strong believer in, you know, you have to give it your own spin. You have to give it your own interpretation. It has to come out uh, from you. I I happen to remember um, one time, uh, there were a few years, some years ago now where I was, I was traveling to Brazil where, uh, where they had, have the big Japanese community and they had some conferences uh, on, um, on Buddhism. And there was a very exuberant um, um, a lecturer um, that, um, you know, was, was, uh, I remember he very emphatically kept saying like only Dogen could have said, you know, others would said this and only Dogen, which um, uh, so I'm not, I, you know, again, I'd have to go back in the, at the passages to see how it myself to, to rethink that. But yeah, I think that that's certainly is Thogan spirit that he wants to come up with, with it. Um, and I think the blue cliff record and the book of serenity themselves, I mean, that those people writing those commentaries, this is what they keep, you know, they'll list like, okay, here's the case. And probably in that, in that prose commentary there, there's, you know, a few other interpretations that are, that are being listed and they're always coming back and say, Oh, you know, so-and-so got it to some extent, but you know, he fell into a secondary position or so-and-so got it, but he only got half of it. And um, 
And so this is, you know, this is a very demanding uh, kind of uh, game, but, but the spirit of it is investigate it uh, yourself, I think. Thank you. Thank you again, Stephen, for uh, coming and uh, giving us uh, some more uh, Dogen food <laughs> to consider. And uh, we, you will certainly be back. And uh, yeah, there's there seems to be endless uh, discussion possible about aspects of Dogen's life and his many many writings. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I'm always I always appreciate the opportunity and. Um, Thank you for the, uh, including the GGU uh, Zamai. Um, and uh, it's always a, always a, a great passage uh, to, uh, to read again and again and again. And yeah, I, I meant to add at the beginning when, to when you were uh, just introducing you that Dogen's writing is also, all of his writing, Shoba Genzo, even Heikoroku, very poetic. Yeah. And you have uh, um, presented for us uh, all of Dogen's poetry, which is a great uh, assist too. So anyway, thank you all very much for for, uh, coming and uh, please check our schedule and come again. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.